Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the brilliant work of Danny Kay, so I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. Before we get into his films, I really want to touch upon his performance style and his work with humanitarianism because Danny was a jack-of-all-trades, as they say, and really worked at a lot of the things that he was interested in. And you can clearly see the way that that transcended throughout his career. According to the interview Danny Kaye did with Studs Kirkle on March 8, 1963, when asked about his talent, Kaye states, Well, I think to be successful in any profession, and every profession has a parallel. I don't think you can talk about show business and not draw parallels in medicine or law or engineering or whatever the profession might be. But anybody who achieves any real status or stature in his profession, I think, has to work very hard at it. Now, some people work more easily than others. Some people have to work considerably harder to get the same amount done. And some people who may have a bit more instinctive or native talent, you know, can hone those edges a little bit sharper without the same amount of work. However, there is no possible way that anybody can achieve the pinnacle of success in their profession without having to work very, very hard at it. Like I had said before, Danny Kaye was known as the jack-of-all-trades in the entertainment world. He sang, he acted, he danced, he did comedy, he conducted music, he cooked, he just did a lot of things that he was interested in. And Studs goes on to ask where his versatility comes from, and Danny describes how he tries to understand what influences him. He replies he can overanalyze the quote-unquote spirit out of something, and most people don't really know where their talents come from. It's just something that you really have to work hard at. And he goes off of the conclusion that having a really strong intuition plays a huge part in his talents. His daughter Dina even said in an interview that Danny was the type of person that tried a lot of different things that he was interested in. And whatever he was interested in, it just so happened that he had the ambition to work hard enough at it to become good at the things that he wanted to pursue. And in this case, it really came in handy when it came to his impact and his talent in the entertainment field. Danny Kaye was also the very first Goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. He was the ambassador from 1954 up until his death in 1987 and held the role for 33 years. According to Danny Kaye's biography on UNICEFUSA.org, the biography states, His humanitarian efforts were legion. As UNICEF's first goodwill ambassador, a post he cherished until the end of his life, Kaye was a role model for celebrities to support a charity. He related to children with a child's lack of inhibition, said his daughter Dina. He rubbed noses, made funny noises, crawled on the floor, and danced with lepers. He received two honorary Oscars for his humanitarian work, including the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award in 1982. In 1965, he joined UNICEF's official delegation in Oslo, where the organization received the Nobel Peace Prize. Danny Kay was the type of person that believed that children were the most natural resources the world could offer. He really did care about how children would affect the future. The article continues to state, Danny Kay disliked small talk. 
He had high standards but wasn't a snob and lived by a credo of his native Brooklyn. Everyone born here liked a person for who he was, not for where he came from or who his parents were. Kay was himself in whatever he did, equally at ease, dining with royals or having coffee at his kitchen table with the plumber. He was the type of person that really believed in authentic conversations and relationships, and he inspired a lot of people through his intellect, artistry, and humanitarianism. And for all of those reasons alone, it is exactly why he is still so beloved by many people today. I believe that artists that have the kind of impact that Danny Kaye had in particular never really die. They live on through their films and they live on through the work that they did because of how powerful and impactful they were as people. The first movie that we're going to talk about today is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. This movie was released in 1947 and was written by Ken Eglund and Everett Freeman and was based on the story by James Thurber. This movie is about a mild-mannered pushover named Walter Mitty who is played by Danny Kaye. He longs to be free of his mundane existence where he has to contend with his pushy mother, played by Faye Banter, indulging in elaborate daydreams. Walter finds himself on a real adventure when the lovely and enigmatic Rosalind Van Horn, played by Virginia Mayo, ropes him into a situation involving valuable jewels, a little black book, and a sinister criminal named Dr. Hugo Hollinshead, who is played by Boris Karloff. The themes of this film are fantasy versus reality, masculinity, relationships, and mundane social circles. The theme of fantasy versus reality mainly comes in the form of Walter's daydreams. He daydreams of a more exciting life featuring being a gambler or steering a ship or being a cowboy, as opposed to living a mundane life that he doesn't feel he fits into. And he certainly doesn't want to conform to what society expects him to be. He often becomes a pushover to please his mother, boss, and his fiancée in particular because he wants to please them. He knows that if he doesn't do what they expect him to do, then they'd be disappointed in him, and he doesn't really know how to handle that kind of disappointment. So he often comes across as insecure and awkward, and that's why he imagines himself as someone who's more confident and sure of himself. And that is where the theme of masculinity comes into view. His daydreams often consist of him as a more masculine being where he doesn't feel as underestimated. All of the people that he encounters in his dreams look to him for guidance, whereas no one in reality expects him to make coherent decisions because of his constant daydreaming. So when he daydreams, he is taken more seriously and he is seen as the leader. And being seen as the leader is something that he wishes that the other people in his real life could see him as. When Walter meets Rosalind, she is really the first person that he meets outside of his daydream that looks to him for that very guidance and reassurance that he wants other people to see him as. He wants all of the other people in his real life to look to him for a more leadership role. And Rosalind is really the first person that comes into his life that takes him seriously in that regard. The only issue is all of the other people in his life believe that he is making Rosalind up as part of his daydreams and basically gaslight him into believing whether or not she's real. And Rosalind is very, very much real. 
She is very much the only person that believes in Walter the way that he wants to be believed in. But there's also that added pressure of Walter and Rosalind having to be sucked into this conspiracy theory and try to solve this mystery. But throughout that whole process, Rosalind is the one that treats Walter as a more masculine and confident person, which is exactly what Walter aspires to be. And that masculinity and confidence is exactly how he portrays himself in his daydreams. Regarding the theme of mundane social circles, in reality, Walter has to face getting married to Gertrude, who is played by Anne Rutherford. Gertrude brings out all of what Walter doesn't want to be, and Rosalind brings out everything that Walter wants to be. From Walter's perspective, he thinks that settling for the mundane means doing what society wants you to do and never speaking for yourself. But Walter wants to speak for himself and dream as long as he can without any restrictions. And that is what the ending of the film represents. We see this really huge shift in character development because Walter finally stands up for what he wants. He goes from being too afraid to disappoint his mother or his boss and does everything to please to doing what he wants for himself and going against the grain of what society expects him to be or what society expects he should be. And that is why I love the film as much as I do, because it is a really great representation of not going by the rule book, of creating your own path and speaking up for what you want, despite how other people may feel. Next up is The Court Jester. This movie was released in 1955 and was written and directed by Melvin Frank and Norman Panama. This movie is about a former carnival performer named Hubert Hawkins, who is played by Danny Kaye, and the maid Jean, who is played by Glynis Johns. They are assigned to protect the infant royal heir from the king. While Jean takes the baby to an abbey, Hawkins gains access to the court by impersonating the king's jester, unaware that the jester is really an assassin. Hubert and Jean do what they can to get the rightful heir to the throne, battling knights and assassins along the way. The two main themes of this movie are outsmarting and mistaken identity. According to the article, A Look Back at Danny Kaye and the Court Jester, written by Scott Beggs on filmschoolrejects.com, Beggs states, The Court Jester throws the kitchen sink at the audience. People bursting into songs randomly. Cases of mistaken identity. A witch that hypnotizes Hubert. Tongue twisters. Instrumental interludes. Marching routines. Sword fights catapults, acrobatic feats, and classic slapstick gags. This is the kind of film that really doesn't take a lot of deep analysis because this film is a mix of comedy, it's a musical, and it's all the way around a more fun, lighthearted film. But I really want to touch upon some of the songs in the film and two specific themes that translate really well through the story. My top two favorite songs from this movie are Life Could Not Better Be and I'll Take You Dreaming. Life Could Not Better Be is the opening number, and this song is so much fun because it really sets the stage for the film. Danny Kaye literally sings about how the movie came to be. He gives you little lines of dialogue within the song that reflect the plot of the movie and the type of research that the cast had to go through. And it's such a great way to set the tone and set the stage for the film.
The second song in the movie that I really love is I'll Take You Dreaming. This song is a lullaby that Hubert sings to the little baby who is the royal heir to the throne. And it is a very soothing, melodic song. And it's more of an escapism song about being in a really calm place before you go to sleep. And I think what's great about this song is that because this film is a comedy, a lot of what you see is very chaotic and very fast-paced. And it's just really nice to be able to at least have one number in the movie that takes on a more calming role and allows the audience to reflect upon a song that is able to take more time and reflect more on the meaning of the lyrics. As far as the theme of outsmarting goes, there's one particular scene in the movie, and it's one of my favorites, where Hubert and Jean are in disguise while they are trying to bring the baby to the castle so they don't get caught by the guards. And Hubert is disguised as an old man, and Jean plays his daughter. The way that Hubert and Jean trick the guard is that Hubert coughs and stutters, and appears to be an old man, so we can't really form a coherent thought. And Jean uses her hands almost like a form of sign language to communicate. And they end up fooling the guard, and they don't get caught. But they were able to use their quick wit and quick thinking to achieve their goals. For the theme of mistaken identity, once they get to the castle, there is a witch that hypnotizes Hubert and she can control him with the snap of her fingers. So every time somebody else snaps their fingers, he comes in and out of that trance. And we see a different side of Hubert. Under the spell, he is more confident, and without the spell, he is more awkward just as himself. And in that sense, it is very similar to The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, because we see two different flip personalities depending on where they are in their environment. When he is under this spell, he is able to get the job done faster than he would have done on his own. The Court Jester is one of those films that Danny Kaye is mainly known for simply because of how great he is with the physicality of the character and the emotional span of the character. There is a great use of wordplay in this movie, there is great use of slapstick, there are great uses of different gags in the film, and Danny did a really amazing job of bringing a lengthy amount of talent to this role strictly just by working with comedy. There are so many different types of comedic tropes in this movie that are done very, very well, which makes this particular role very clear and why this movie is Danny Kaye's most well-known film. Next up is The Five Pennies. This movie was released in 1959 and was written by Jack Rose and Melville Chalvison and was based on the story by Robert Smith. This movie was directed by Melville Chalvison. This movie is about a musician named Red Nichols, who is played by Danny Kaye. He moves from a small town to New York City to become a jazz musician. Although he experiences culture shock, he soon becomes well-respected in the clubs, even forming a friendship with Louis Armstrong. After marrying Willa, played by Barbara Bell Geeds, and having a daughter, Dorothy, played by Susan Gordon, Red still tours constantly. 
But when he learns that Dorothy has polio, he realizes he must rethink his priorities. The themes of this movie are careers, family, and priorities. The first theme I want to cover in this film is the theme of careers. At the beginning of the movie, we see that Red is new to the music scene. It's the 1920s, and he has aspirations to be one of the greatest jazz musicians. And he always says that people are quote-unquote going to be working for him someday because at some point in his career he wants to be in the big leagues and he wants people looking to him. And because of this, he feels the constant need to prove his talent. And we see this the first time that he meets Willa and Louis Armstrong. He plays with Louis despite getting incredibly drunk and causing chaos within the club, but manages somehow to get up there and play and makes a name for himself with Louis and the rest of his bandmates. Red eventually creates his own band. He goes on the road and is basically living his dream, and he becomes incredibly controlling of his own narrative. He is the man running in the show, and he is in control of the kinds of music that he plays and the kinds of stories that he wants to tell within the music scene. Which leads us into the theme of family. When Willa becomes pregnant, there's this lingering question of what will we have to give up in order to provide for the family? And I think that that question really does reflect how hard it can be to balance both career and family. Willa and Red are both in positions where they love to perform and they enjoy what they do. And the thought of giving that up never really sat right with them. But could this be the reason that they would have to give something up. Could this child really change the trajectory of their careers and the trajectory of their life? And would they actually let their child change that for them? Red is actually the first person to say that he'll stop. He'll give up the career so he can raise his family and be with his daughter and his wife. But Willa convinces him to keep working which represents Willa's role in that relationship because Willa is very much Red's rock. She wants him to follow his dreams. She knows how important music is to him, and she knows that he probably wouldn't be in the kinds of positions that he's in within his career if it wasn't for his passion and his love for music. And because Willa is the singer in Red's band, she very much shares those dreams and those sentimentalities with Red. She's on his side, and she makes it very clear that they are in this together. And that is where we see the growth of their family move towards. Throughout Dorothy's life, up until the age of, I would say the ages between five to eight, we see that they've been living on the road. They've been living as a busy family with a career and they've been taking their child on the road and therefore because of that Dorothy has a very quote-unquote unconventional childhood because she's not being raised in a home where she goes to a public school and she comes home and does homework and Willa is the housewife and Red has a nine-to-five job. They are in the midst of celebrityism and artistry and she is growing up around that atmosphere. Which leads us into the theme of priorities. Willow wants Dorothy to have a quote-unquote normal childhood. She wants Dorothy to have a childhood that isn't dictated by being on the road touring all the time because of their busy careers. And she actually starts dropping hints to Red 
saying that maybe it's about time that they put their dreams and aspirations aside for the sake of their daughter and really think about settling down and trying to find some normalcy after so many years of just having a busy schedule and living a busier lifestyle. Red ends up suggesting sending Dorothy to boarding school, which ends up meaning that Dorothy is in school while Red and Willa go off touring. Dorothy eventually becomes sick with polio, and that part of the story really creates a huge shift between Red and his relationship with his daughter, because their relationship becomes incredibly strained. Dorothy is very, very angry because she feels that her dad picked his career over her, and she doesn't understand why she couldn't be a priority in her parents' lives. And Willa actually comes back for Dorothy. Red didn't come back for Dorothy right away. He only came back for her once he found out that she was sick, which gives Dorothy the impression that she was never really that important of a figure in her dad's life. And from then on, Red is trying everything that he can do to make it up to Dorothy and let her know that he really does love and care about her. The character development in this film is really great because we do see Red begin to shift his priorities. He then realizes that he needs to be able to give up his career to give his family some sense of stability. And that's exactly what they do. Red and Willa end up buying a home for Dorothy to live in, and this is the first real home that Dorothy has ever been in. And we see that up until the end of the film. She's about... 13 or 14 years old at the end of the movie and it's finally that normal life that they've all kind of been dreaming about or wondering about throughout their careers and it's a huge turning point for them as a family because we see them living in a home. Red does get that 9 to 5 job and Dorothy is able to go to a public school and she has friends and it's definitely that normal, stable, everyday kind of life that they've always thought about or envisioned in some way. But at the same time, Red misses what he had as a musician. He becomes somewhat of a shell of his younger self. So he goes from being this excited young adult eager to take on the world with his career to being a slightly older man battling with what he wishes he could be. And the film ending represents a lot of those emotions. Willa comes to a place where she reminds Red that he can still be the great musician he always wanted to be while still being able to be there for his family. And the film really does come to a really great consensus of the true meaning of what it means that you can't have both and you can still be successful and happy. Now moving on to some fun facts. For The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, in an unusual MIDI dream sequence, Boris Karloff appears as the Frankenstein monster, which explains MIDI's fear of Karloff's character. Danny Kaye's wife Sylvia Fine wrote the lyrics to a song in which Walter MIDI fantasizes that he is the homosexual woman's hat designer and Tole of Paris, whose show he stumbles upon while escaping from villains in Stacy's department store. She was a musical theater buff and introduced a reference to the song Old Man River from Showboat into the lyrics of the song Anatole of Paris, 
and satirical references to Showboat in one of Mitty's daydreams. The song Beautiful Dreamer is used in many dream scenes with Walter and Rosalind. The several real-life scenes with Walter and Rosalind has her playing it for him on a piano, but never the full song. Walter comments to her the first time she plays it, That's my favorite song, Beautiful Dreamer. I like the way you play it. Some fun facts for the court jester. Danny Kaye's daughter, Dina Kay said for the rest of his life, when people recognized Danny in a restaurant, they would walk up and spout the entire brew that is true speech. The song Life Could Not Better Be was used as the theme song of the Danny Kay show. This film was included among the American Film Institute's 2000 list of the top 100 funniest American movies. Basil Rathbone was a world-class fencer, and it was due to the efforts that the hilarious fencing scene was filmed without injury. He later admitted that several times he was almost skewered by Danny Kaye's sword. Some fun facts for the Five Pennies. While Danny Kaye worked hard to be able to accurately fake playing cornet, he practiced for months learning the fingering of the instrument. It was the real Red Nichols who provided all of the cornet playing for Kaye in this movie. The exaggerated tango Danny Kaye did with the blonde Charleston dancer in the nightclub scene was not scripted. The rehearsals only called for her to do the Charleston, then flit offstage. During one of them, Danny suddenly grabbed her and began hamming it up, while she quickly ad-libbed. Director Melvin Shelvison liked it and added it into the routine. Moving on to some movie recommendations of the week. First up, we have Susie. This movie was released in 1936 and stars Jean Harlow and Cary Grant. This movie had a lot of really interesting chemistry, a lot of really interesting character dynamics between Harlow and Grant. I think that they worked incredibly well together, and the movie itself was surprisingly very emotional and very heartfelt, and it was fun being able to see both of those actors in those kinds of roles, because although Cary Grant can do both comedy and drama, he is more known for doing comedy. And more known for doing like screwball slapstick. So it's always really fun being able to see him do serious roles and for everybody to see his range. And as for Jean Harlow, she was known for playing a lot of these really outspoken, broad women. And it was great being able to see her play those kinds of characters along with Cary Grant. I think they complemented each other beautifully. Next up is Kirk Douglas in The Bad and the Beautiful. This movie was released in 1952 and has a lot of really interesting commentary about the film industry. Kirk Douglas plays a producer who becomes a director and it's about the highs and the lows of his career. And this movie was based off of D David Oselznik, who was a very famous producer in the classic Hollywood era. And this film by no means really isn't anything amazing. It's no masterpiece, but it's incredibly interesting. And it was directed by Vincent Minnelli, and I think it's one of his more obscure movies in the sense that it doesn't really fit into a lot of the other films that he did thematically. But it's just this offhand, interesting take on the film industry. Last but not least, we have An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. This movie was released in 1957 and is a highly emotional, dramatic romance of a film. Cary Grant and Deborah Carr have excellent chemistry together. They are another pairing that complement each other incredibly well. 
And the movie just all the way around is really well done. Amazing performances. Great intellectual, emotional story. A film that does a really good job of putting all the loose ends together. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning into M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for next week's episode on the history of horror movies featuring some of my top picks.